Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Was it uh, thick enough for you this morning when you stepped outside? I'm serious. It was thick this morning early, early before the sun came up. It was very thick. Beloved, let us not be thick. Let us turn to God's holy word and look in God's holy word. We're going to begin reading in chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to conclude uh, looking at chapter um, 6 to verse 12 of chapter 6 this morning. 6, 9 through 12, better things, living in the full assurance of hope. The warning that the preacher began there in chapter 5, verse 11, now concludes. He's sternly warned the congregation of the real danger that they're in, the real danger of apostasy, that is, falling away because they've grown dull or sluggish or lazy, and now they're in that great danger to fall away from the faith. And the preacher now ends believing better things regarding the congregation that he addresses. He's fully convinced of these better things. He's convinced that they are the good soil that receives the rain and brings forth a harvest of righteousness and receives the blessing of God. So let's look now to God's holy word. We're going to look again at chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through uh, verse 12. This is the word of the living God. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine, that is the ABCs, the, the foundational doctrines of Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in case of those who have once been enlightened, that is, illumined, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore or renew them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness or diligence to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his eternal blessing to it. Let's pray and ask God to bless. Our Father, we come before your holy word on this, your Lord's day. One day in seven, when you've called us to set aside and to remember the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. Not only as our creator, but also as our redeemer and recreator in Jesus Christ. So come in this hour, bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart. 
Oh, Father, take my weak efforts and use it to feed the multitude that is before me. We pray and we would ask this for the glory of the Lamb and in His name. Amen. So many times in the Christian life, our faith in God's love and in His goodness, particularly as it's directed toward ourselves, is often weak, while our love for the world often, more often than not, appears so strong. And while we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep, that He will lose none that the Father has given Him, we also know that the Christian life is lived out, as it were, in this fallen world. That we're always battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're always dealing with the ups and downs of Christian sanctification. Right? It's not just this one straight line, but it's a line that progressively moves upward and onward in Christ Jesus, but a, a, a line that's oftentimes jagged and, and rolls upward, even as we grow in Jesus Christ. And one of the things we need to remember if we're going to grow in our faith and as it grow in assurance that we must continually be pursuing this assurance. As a minister, one of the more crippling things that believers deal with is the anxiety that God loves me, that God cares for me, that God takes notice of me, that this God who controls every sparrow in the sky and every hair on our head, is the God who knows me, who loves me, who's given Christ for me. But when we don't have a strong assurance of that love, it's crippling. And then the Christian life becomes very burdensome. It's very unattractive, not as winsome, not as commendable to a watching world. You see, saints, sanctification, this growth in grace, this growth in assurance is a work, we're told, in our standards of God's free grace. But it never allows for laziness. It never allows for complacency. If we're going to grow in our assurance in salvation, then we must pursue that assurance. In some ways, it's counterintuitive, right? We would think, well, it would be passively received. Yes and no. We must pursue it. We must set our face toward it. We must seek Him. For those who seek Him diligently will find Him and will have this assurance of the salvation that the the Father actually smiles upon me in Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle says this. J.C. Ryle is always a good theologian to quote. He says, I bless God that our salvation in no way depends on our own works. But I would never have any believer for a moment forget that our sense of salvation depends much on the manner of our living. Did you catch the difference there? That salvation is founded on Jesus Christ and Him alone. He's the the anchor. He's the forerunner. Right? He's the, the great high priest who is our righteousness, as Matt has prayed. And yet our sense of that salvation waxes and wanes. And one of the ways that we grow in a greater sense of His love toward us is pursuing that sense of His love, pursuing it through godliness. And that's the way to assurance, through practical godliness that flows from our relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the author here in verses 9 to 12, having just given that dire warning, 
about the reality that it's impossible to restore again those who once, who have tasted of the Holy Spirit, of the age to come, the goodness of God. If, if they are to fall away, it's impossible once again, after they renounce the faith, to restore them to repentance. So he now comes as a loving pastor, right, to, to comfort these readers, to, to ground them in the assurance of God's love for them. You see, he, he longs and loves the congregation that he is addressing, like any pastor, worth his salt. He longs to see them grow up in Jesus Christ, to mature. Notice what he says there in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, right, he's just spoken of this severe warning that apostasy is a real thing in the visible church. Perhaps we know people ourselves who've, who've walked away from the faith and even gone to the next step, renouncing the faith and declaring war on God, calling Jesus to be damned, if you will. Though we speak in this way, this severe warning about those who would apostatize, notice what he says, yet in your case, beloved. The only place he uses this title, beloved, is here in the whole book, right? He loves them. He, he's concerned. We feel sure of better things, things pertaining to salvation for you. Those who apostate are not you. We believe the better things concerning your case. But we ask ourselves, how, how can the preacher know this? How can any elder know this? How can any man of God know this about his people? How can we know this? How can we be assured of salvation and God's love for us? Well, this morning, let me give you just two points. And the first point is the reason for assurance. What is the reason for the pastor's confidence? To those he's addressing. How can he know this? Is there evidence? Is there fruit that tells us what kind of tree he's addressing? Notice what he says there in verse 10. The answer, he gives us the answer for the reason for the assurance that he sees, that he's confident in the better things for these people. Notice what he says. For or because, we know this, because or for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Well, he gives us Three pillars, if you will, are, are three reasons for assurance. Let me give them to you rather quickly. First, the first pillar, the first reason for the preacher's confidence regarding the, the salvation of those he's addressing is that he sees the love that these believers have for the glory of God's name. These believers to whom he's addressing love God. They exalt the name of Jesus. They make much of Jesus. They lift high the name of the Son of God. He knows that the folks he's addressing are theocentric in all that they do. That God is supreme and central in all their affections. That they are quick to pronounce and to promote the preeminence of Christ in all things. That these folks want more than anything else for God to be glorified. Every breath I take, every action I make, every thought I think, every affection of my heart is that Jesus Christ would be made much of 
in the congregation. They're determined in this matter and to this end. Well, secondly, what is this, the second pillar? The first pillar is the, the glorification of God's name. That's what they want. That's what they long for. Notice that the preacher is confident because he himself knows God. He's just not a preacher about things that he knows nothing of. He, he knows God. And he knows God is not unjust. That God is not so unjust so to overlook their good works for all the saints, both in the past and presently. You see, he sees the fruit that's coming from a healthy tree. He sees them exalting in the name of God, exalting in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, making much of Christ. And he sees their love one for another. Now let's just step back for a moment and think about salvation, because I think I want us to get some context here. Because I want us to, to see what he sees and what I see and I see in you and the elders see in you as a congregation. The Bible is clear in Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not your own doing. It's a gift of God so that no man may boast, not of works. Right? You see, salvation we know, right? As reformed believers, salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. To God and God alone belongs the glory. But we often forget, and we, we often don't quote Ephesians 2, verse 10. The very next verse, after those great verses on soteriology, on the doctrine of salvation. Notice what it says here in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. This word workmanship is a unique word in the Greek. It, it's the same word that a, a poet would use to craft a poem. God's saying here that, that we're his poem, we're his workmanship. He's the artist, we're the clay, and he's made something beautiful of our lives by grace and grace alone in Jesus Christ. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, saints, it's, it's these good works that God has ordained for us that the author of Hebrews clearly sees in the life of the congregation. And he knows that if God has ordained them, having saved them by grace, unto good works, that if God has ordained all of this, then God is surely going to do what? He's going to reward them. He's going to recognize their good works. You see, beloved, in Jesus Christ, we need to remember this, that you do and you can please your heavenly Father. Right? We love to stress total depravity. And praise God, because it's a biblical doctrine. But we must never, ever forget that those who are no longer in Adam, but now in Jesus Christ, can actually please God. That we can minister and serve in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ under his smile. Right? And isn't that what every child longs to have? The smile of their father, the approval of their father, looking upon, son, good job. Well done, son. I love you. Oh, beloved fathers, I hope you're not too much of a, a stoic to tell your children, oh, I love you, son. I love you, sweetheart. I am so, you're so pretty. You're so encouraging to me. You're so everything, right? All that we would lavish on our children with moderation, of course, not flattery, 
but speaking truth into their lives, calling our sons to be men, calling the man out in that son. Son, you can do this. I know you can do it. Oh, to hear that from a father. You see, God will and does reward what we do for him in this life. Listen to Westminster Confession of Faith, right? Unless you doubt me, and you should unless I can make warrant of it from the Word of God or from the standards. Westminster Confession of Faith, 16.6, talking about believers. Believers accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, the Father, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. That the Father is pleased with you. And the writer to the Hebrews is addressing this congregation saying, I see your good works. I see how you make much of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see how you love each other. I know the Father's smile is resting upon you. You see, isn't that what they need to hear? He's just given this severe warning about the real dangers of apostasy. And he comes along, puts his arm around them and says, Son, daughter of the Most High God, I see God at work in you. I see the way you love him. I see the way you exalt his name. I see the way you love one another. I see how you make much of his name, you see. It's these good works that these believers have done and are presently doing that, that forms this third pillar, right? The third pillar of the preacher's confidence, of the better things that belong to salvation for his readers. Notice what he says, what the author says. God is not going to overlook. He, he's not unjust the love that you have shown his name and the way that you have served the saints and are still doing. Now remember, he's writing saints who are in the thick, in the heat of the crucible of persecution and suffering for the name. He's going to tell us in chapter 10, beginning at verse 32 to 34, that though they have not yet got to the place of resisting with their own blood, many of them, have suffered greatly for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them have had economic hardship because of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them have been scorned and abused for that name. Many of them have endured much. And many of them in so doing have enabled and helped others to continue to, to press on, to, to not grow weary in well-doing but to persevere in the faith. You see, perseverance is the fruit of true biblical faith, right? It's not he who starts well. Many start well, but will you end? And the preacher here is reminding them that God smiles upon them, that they will end, and that they're still doing these good works. So the preacher can be confident of the sincerity of these Beloved believers, because they're glorifying the name by serving the saints. And saints, isn't this exactly the kind of church we long to be? Don't you want to be a, a church that makes much of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm always kind of shaken a little bit when, I, when I'm introduced to ministers who have ministries after their own name. You know, it's, uh, I'm not real comfortable with that. We don't make much of our own name. 
we don't pat ourselves on the back. and Somehow we've arrived or we've accomplished something. No, we, we make much of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And where is that seen? Where does that evidence itself? Where, where does a church that makes much of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, where is it seen? How do I know that church makes much of the name? Well, one, they speak about it. But two, those who make much of the name bear much fruit. Right? You'll know my disciples by the fruit that they bear. And that's what this church is doing. That's what we long to be here. Where the name of Christ is exalted. And it's seen in how we love and serve one another. You see, every time you, you love the children of the church by serving in the nursery, nursery, you know who sees? You know who sees? God sees. God remembers. For they're his, his children, right? We've just been given to them to steward, to, to train up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Every time you, you write a note of encouragement to that weary saint who, who's struggling, you know what God does? God sees. God remembers. And he's well pleased. Letter writing is a powerful thing. When someone takes the time out to actually get a pen and paper to write a fellow saint that's struggling or in the doldrums or melancholic or depressed, that is a powerful tool, a powerful thing. What an act of love, right? God sees, God remembers. Every time you, you sign up on the church's sign-up genie to take a meal to a, a new mother, little Amy Vernon, who was born even this week, right? We're going to have an opportunity to serve Cameron and Kyle by, by taking a meal. You know who sees? I don't see it. The elders don't necessarily see it. The deacons don't. But you know who sees it? He who neither slumbers nor sleeps. He who gives rest to the weary. The great encourager of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees. He remembers. You see, God sees all that we do for others because we love his name. He never forgets every cold cup of water given to the needy in his name. He's not so unjust as to overlook your work, beloved, and the love you have shown for his name in serving one another. You see, the preacher is confident that grace is at work in the lives of these believers. Why? Because he sees the fruit and evidence of salvation among them. Just as a healthy tree bears fruit, a healthy Christian bears what? How about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control, right? That's what a healthy Christian bears. Those who make much of Jesus, his name, serve one another by bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. But even as though these believers love Christ, right? They love him. They exalt the name. They're bearing fruit. They're not home yet, right? We can't rest on our laurels. We can't rest on today's manna tomorrow, can we? We've had faithfulness, God's faithfulness. Matt's so faithful to pray about the pulpit. I appreciate it so much. But you know what? We've got to be faithful next week. And then the week after, and the week after. Until we can no longer breathe, we're going to make much of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to pray that he gives us grace to remain faithful. 
to make much of that name, to, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that we might continue the race and we might run worthy of the Lamb to receive the prize that does not perish, you see. Not a crown of glory, of gold, of this world, but an everlasting crown that can neither perish, spoil, or fade. So he writes them. He exhorts us. Yeah, you're doing great. You've done great. You're still doing great. But you know what? Tomorrow's coming. You've got to press on. That's the second point. The call to pursue the, the full assurance of hope in verses 11 to 12. Saints, God the Father wants you to know that you're loved this morning. Do you know that? That you're loved? That the Father's smile rests upon you? That He's pleased with you? That you can get off the treadmill? You can kick it to the curb, right? How many treadmills are for sale right now? Exercise equipment, refurbished, used once. You can get off the treadmill of the Christian life and begin to walk under the smile of Jesus Christ, knowing that you're loved by Him because of what He's done. It's always based on what He's done. You know, you, you come before God, you know, I've been so faithful this week. I've enjoyed my Bible time. Sparky taught me. I love, I love the teaching of God's Word. Right? But you know what? You know how you go into the Holy of Holies? The same way you went the first time, through the blood of the Lamb, through the faithful high priest. He never sets his ministry aside. Oh, I think Jim's arrived. I don't need to ever live to make intercession for Jim. You know, look how great he is. Oh, no. no, no. If Jim is truly growing in grace, you know what Jim's going to be? Jim's going to be the lowest creature. He couldn't get lower enough, low enough, right? Because he knows Apart from Jesus, as Psalm 16 reminds us, Nels reminds me often, Lord, I have no good but you. You're my only good. You know, that's not just not a t-shirt, a bumper sticker. It's like something we like to put in our car and drive 85 and a 45, right? You know? No, Jesus, you're my only good. No, no, really. I have no other good. That's my only good. That's my only plea. My only confidence is you. I'm a failure at everything because I'm not perfect as you're perfect. But Jesus, you're not a failure. You're victor. You became a failure for me at the cross. You absorbed the wrath of God in my place, took, taking the penalty that was due my sin. Not just sin, but my sin. And that you rose victorious for me and you've given me righteousness. You were raised for my justification a righteousness that's imputed to me, you see. Beloved, we need to know that we're loved by the Father, that He wants us to grasp something of the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of the love for us in Christ Jesus. Paul says about this love, now get this, I want us to hear this, Presbyterian. He says it's a love that surpasses what? Knowledge. Oh, what do you mean? It's not less than propositional. It's not less than doctrinal. But, beloved, it's the Holy Spirit taking that great doctrine of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and making it live in your heart. Right? Yeah. 
you know, it's like you heard about another story, but now you're seeing it for yourself, right? Like the woman at the well, right? She comes home telling about all that Jesus has done for her. She tells the people, then Jesus arrives in the town, and he begins to preach and teach. He said, you know, we used to believe because of what you said. Well, we now know because we heard ourselves from the mouth of the shepherd. We know Jesus Christ. We know he's the one, the Messiah God promised. You see, God wants us to know this love. He wants us to know. We know this because in verse 11 he says this. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness or diligence to have full assurance of the hope until the end. Let me paraphrase for you. You've shown great zeal and love for God's name and on the saints. and Now show the same zeal in the pursuit of the assurance of this hope. There are three things I want us to notice here. First, growing in assurance of faith is not automatic. It doesn't happen without effort. He says in verse 11, you must continue to show the same earnestness that has characterized and marked your life thus far. So how do we grow in assurance? First and foremost, the ground of our assurance, the, the cement of our assurance, the anchor of our assurance is where? Is it found? Is it found within or without? It's found without. It's found in the pillar, in the rock that is Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done. This is the concrete of our assurance. But secondly... By being diligent in the power of Christ's Holy Spirit to believe the promises, we obey the commands. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing it's God who works to will within us. You see, we love and serve the name. We make much of the name, and we love and serve the name and his saints. But what is this hope that we're growing in insurance of? Is it not just mere wish fulfillment? No, it's not. Right? I hope it doesn't rain today. Is it? Oh, it's raining now. Look at that. That's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is what the psalmist preached to his own soul there in Psalm 42, verse 5. Notice what he preached to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in such turmoil? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Notice the first thing we notice about this hope is that it doesn't come naturally to the children of Adam. Biblical hope must be preached into our hearts and most often preached by whom? By ourselves. Where we take up the word of God, we take up the promise of God, and we begin to drive it into our soul. Right? We begin to meditate on it, to chew it. That's the cud, right? Marinating in it, thinking upon it. God, you love me. You say you love me, and I believe it. Lord, help my unbelief. You see, saints, we must constantly be reminding ourselves that, that God is good and he's trustworthy. Right? This is some of the things you might say to your soul. Come on, soul. Believe Christ. Believe his promises. They're more sure than the day is long. When has God ever failed you, soul? When has he ever failed to come through? Take him at his word. He's no man's debtor, 
Like so many of us are moping around. It's raining every day in our heart. It's like a rain cloud. Well, it's like Eeyore. Oh, beloved, walk under the smile of your Father. Now, sometimes it's going to rain. But even when it rains, you're going to see that smiling face behind that frowning providence. Because you know He's there. And by faith, He'll test you. And it'll see whether you truly will believe when things aren't blue skies and balloons and unicorns, right? Biblical hope is a confident expectation that God will do what God has promised to do. It's an expectation anchored in God Himself and His character and His nature and what He's promised to do in Jesus Christ. And this hope is guaranteed because it's rooted and grounded in His faithfulness. That's why Christ is called the hope of glory, right? So how does this hope relate to faith? Hope is a subset of faith. Hope is an expression of faith that focuses on the future. Faith typically thinks and marinates and thinks about the past, what God has done in the past. Conversely, hope thinks about the future, what God has promised to do based on what he's done. It's certain to come to pass. Beloved, when this assurance of hope for the future grips and controls your heart, it visibly shows up in your life. How will it show up in your life when you have this assurance of this hope? Notice what it will do. Notice what it does. It throws off laziness. It throws off dullness and sluggishness. Right? Look down at verse 12. Right? showing the earnestness to obtain the full assurance of faith until Christ returns so that you may not be sluggish. How many of us are sluggish this morning and dull and lazy because we haven't been pursuing this assurance of the hope and its fullness in Jesus Christ? You see the cause and effect of what he's saying here, that when you are assured and know that God is for you, that you belong to Him, that His love for you is real, it empowers you. It, it sets your heart free to run in His commandments, to run and not grow weary, to mount out with wings like eagles, because you're walking under the smile of Jesus. You're living the Christian life in the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. This kind of love will empower your heart so that you won't be sluggish and just coast and be Christian in name only, a nominal Christian, Right? I believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, then that will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. It's the Jesus of the doctrine. It's the Jesus of justification. It's Jesus who is our justification, holding fast to Him. It will enable you to shake off your sloth and press onward and upward in Jesus Christ. You see, the temptation is to stop trusting Him, to stop hoping in Him, to just take the gospel for granted, to presume upon it, to, to not prize it, somehow thinking we can just coast into heaven. I'm just going to coast. I'm going to put it in neutral and just coast downhill into heaven. Well, that's not the picture of the New Testament view of salvation. That's not the picture of sanctification. That's not the picture Jesus gives us in Matthew 16, you must take up your cross and follow me. There's nothing coasting about that. We must put to death the sloth. We must put to death the dullness. We must put to death the, the sluggishness and put on Jesus Christ. 
You see, in the coming days, one of the main things we're going to see in Hebrews is that Jesus is praying for us to put to death the sluggishness, to put to death the sloth. He's praying for our perseverance, that our full assurance might be made known. So let's imitate those who've gone before us. And he's going to go on and tell us a little bit about Abraham next week. Those who from their labors have rested. Verse 12, those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. All the, the litany of saints in the Old Testament who've gone before us. Giving us a little preview right here in verse 12 of Hebrews 11. This great cloud of witnesses. So saints, keep pressing and preaching to your soul. So why are you downcast? Why are you in such turmoil? Hope in God. He who did not spare his own son, will he with him not also give you all things? Do you preach to yourself this way? Some of the best sermons I've ever preached have been by myself. Taking the word of God, taking Psalm 42, taking Romans 8 and asking God to make it real in my heart. To give me the assurance of faith that I might press on. You see, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Next week we'll look at this call to patience and perseverance in the example of Abraham who found God faithful to the very end. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. We do thank you, Father, that we can rest in the rock-solid assurance of your word. You have spoken. It is sure. It is more sure than life itself. It is forever established in the heavens. We pray that we would hold fast to your word and hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the lover of our soul, the one in whom you are well pleased, and we in him are pleasing to you. So, Lord, enable us by faith, by your Holy Spirit, to put to death laziness, sluggishness, that we might make much of your name, and that making much of your name would be seen in our love one for another, that we might grow in our assurance of the great fullness of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen.